so this morning we don't have a traditional sermon, uh, at least not on the schedule. Uh, if you have talked with John and I at all, you know that both of us are quite capable of uh, impromptu sermons. Uh, but our goal today is to have a conversation. Uh, and so, John, you and I talk a lot uh, in our conversations about the future of the church. Uh, but really, as I thought about it, I think most of our conversations are really conversations about hope and whether we have any. Uh, and if we're if we're being really honest with ourselves. Uh, it, it seems like the two of us can never find a day in which both of us are hopeful. Uh, but the flip side of that is that we rarely find a day when both of us are hopeless. And I think that comes from having worked inside the church, uh, both the hope and the hopelessness. Uh, because working inside the church is working inside the system in this big, unwieldy, racist, stagnant institution. And as I recall, we got into one of our conversations in a worship committee meeting and all of us realized, well, hey, maybe it's worthwhile to just transfer this conversation to a Sunday morning. But the other piece of that conversation is that you and I have both been doing anti-racism work for years in the church. And I think coming out of that, we both have a very strong belief in the power of dialogue and the importance of open-ended, low-agenda conversation. And my sense, at least personally, is that a lot of white people are thinking, oh, I have to have dialogue. How do I do that? How do I do it right? What am I supposed to say? Am I supposed to say anything? Can I be in dialogue and just be silent? Is that what I should do? Uh, and so to me, um, part of my goal in doing this is as we consciously take on the work of anti-racism as a congregation, uh, that it was really important to model dialogue and to bring that forward as part of our process. Uh, so that was the starting point for me. What else do you want to add as we get into this? Well, I, th <clears throat> I think for me, a starting point is understanding, first of all, is that um, I am an African-American by birth, a Christian by faith, and an Anabaptist by conviction. And sometimes those pieces run together and they run counter to each other as well. Most of you know that uh, I left the Mennonite church at one point, promising never ever to come back again. Uh, but something something happened, it drew me back. And, and I guess it was the love and the concern and consideration that um, Anabaptist brought into my life, but it somehow still rankers me when I hear my brothers and sisters somehow tout uh, racist uh, language and promote 
uh, racist and exclusive uh, lifestyle. And um, I go back to uh, one particular situation that that happened to me, and I ask myself, is that still there? Um, Turner, Oregon, where a um, in the midst of a congregation, a, a conference, um, we were talking. Actually, it was the National Mennonite Convention, and um, I had been asked to give uh, a speech on what Mennonites could do to help alleviate the issues of anti-oppression. Um, and I really made some, I thought, some very concrete suggestions of what the church could do. But in the course of that discussion, one pastor got up and said, if we do what John Powell says that we are to do, the next thing you know, they'll have me out of my pulpit, and he used the word, the N-word, out of there. And hell broke loose for me at that point. I guess I do have, um, I have hope. But there are many days, and particularly these days, I seem to feel a lot of hopelessness. Um, particularly when I hear a white brother, and I call him a brother, even though he is a conservative brother, I don't know him, but he says we shouldn't be talking about white privilege much rather we should be talking about white blessings. And I'm asking the question, what does that have to do with anything that God and Christ is calling us to do and to be? And I think as Shalom begins to talk about who we are and our vision and where we are heading, I think it's important for us to have a family conversation around that. Um, it gets, it can get, um, it can get somewhat tension, uh, tension ridden, but it also can provide an opportunity for us to grow. And that's what I'm really hoping that this conversation will lead to. Yeah, thanks, John. Um, I think, as, as you were talking, I was thinking at Shalom, uh, really since the time I interviewed here two and a half years ago, we've talked about having more conversations about race uh, and, and have not found the time or space or will to do that. Um, and as we find ourselves now uh, with all of those things, um, it's really good to be engaging this conversation. Um, and and I think one of the things uh, that that we one of the starting points we wanted 
to share was uh, just John, can you share about what what are your starting points for anti-racism work and what's the framework that you work from? Well, the starting point that I work from actually is um, is my faith. Um, the scriptures that were read this morning is really pivotal to me. Uh, understanding who Jesus is and who Jesus is calling us to be. Uh, understanding that this is a long process that Jesus has led us toward uh, a focal point of making a decision that we can be either in the world and part of the world or we can speak boldly to it and then promote what Jesus is calling us to be. That's my starting point. My, my starting point is Jesus. And um, my starting point also uh, looks at uh, who are my friends and how can I um, gather people and help them become allies in this in this um, precarious situation that we find ourselves in. Now is the time. If we're ever going to do it, now is really the time. And so I ask, I'm, I'm asking you then, Hillary, you've been in this work. What, what motivates you? Um, I don't know how, what kind of an age difference there is between you and I. But one of the things I think that we are finding is that we have some similar kind of understandings of who we are and what Christ is calling us to be. So what motivates you? What gets you, your juices flowing? Yeah, I think it's somewhere between 30 and 35 years, because I'm older than I thought I was. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But uh, I think that uh, I want to just pull that out to say that that was part of our hope in this conversation, too, that part of the work that we have to do is cross-generational conversation. And, and there are so many different <laughs> conversations to, to be had. Um, but I think as, as you talked about uh, scripture and faith being your starting point, that kind of pulled me back to uh, the Wesleyan quadrilateral of, of what shapes our uh, faith, what what informs our faith, um, and and scripture is one of those, and then uh, experience, which you talked about too, I think is the primary one for me. Um, growing up in in a predominantly white city, that actually at, at the time I was growing up in Seattle. Um, was about as diverse as Ann Arbor is right now. Um, and some really, there was some really intentional work just in my public high school around naming inequities in public education. And, and we were aware that we were in the wealthiest public school, um, but there was a, a real movement among students uh, to dig into what that disparity looked like and, and a revelation for us of how deep that went in the public school system in the early 2000s. Um, and so I think starting there and then just through a variety of experiences, some of which I chose and some of which I was just really fortunate to, to land in 
um, that that pulled me more and more into uh, an awareness of how small the world is if you insist on living in a white world, um, and and how how limiting that is, and and that that is a choice. Uh, it's it's an easy choice. It's if you're uh -huh. if you're white, it's the easiest choice, right? There's a lot structurally that keeps you there, um, but it is still a choice. And and there are which which means that there are things on the flip side that you can choose to do differently. Uh, so I think that's that's some of the groundwork for me. Yeah, and I think when you said there are things that we can choose to do differently. Um, let's bring it home. Um, we both are passionate about our faith. We are passionate about uh, what we believe and passionate about promoting that. We are very passionate also about Shalom. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, we be have we believe that Shalom has a mission, and we believe that Shalom has a vision. Yes. And I, I'm particularly caring about what that vision is. Um, I think that for us to say we want to move to a different location and to a different place says something about that kind of a vision that we really want to promote mm -hmm. um i find it rather interesting as an example that the place that we are going uh has a lot going for it it's in the middle of an upper middle class community it's on the edge of um, university, North Campus, housing. It's also very close to um, King, Martin Luther King Elementary School. Mm -hmm. uh, it is also very close to um, a low income project. That's a challenge. That's a challenge. That's a challenge of both economics and that's a challenge of both race and it's a challenge of also of educational status. But more than anything else, I think for us, it's probably a challenge around race. And while we find ourselves, one, one of the things I wanted just to say, I care about Shalom. But I also want to see more people like me <laughs> at Shalom. Uh, and that's going to take some work. That's going to take a lot of work. And I think it's going to probably take some very honest and open discussion and dialogue about who we are and what and and what we can be about. So um, I, I don't want to be 
I don't want us to be like a congregation in Buffalo, uh, an African American congregation in Buffalo, who um, uh, placed an ad for uh, white members, even white attenders, um, who gave them twenty, would promise them twenty-five dollars a Sunday if they just come. We don't want that. <laughs> We want our t uh, time together to be Christ-centered. So let's talk about Shalom. Let's talk about how do we do that? How do we make Shalom the kind of Christ-centered, justice-focused community that Christ is calling us to? What does that look like for us? I know that this is going totally counter to some of the questions that we had, but that's my that's my passion right now. How do we bring it to Shalom? Yeah, and I just love that you're uh, tugging on that thread and and that we're um, able to begin to have this conversation openly because I, I think we. Um, I've heard this in pockets of Shalom over the last two years, um, but really, if if we're thinking about that, then then we we need to have a public, honest conversation and and to get really thoughtful. And I think it goes back to what you said about mission and vision. Um, and and this is also coming out of a year and a half of working at a nonprofit capacity builder where we do. I mean, I manage the building at New, um, but what new does is a lot of strategic planning a lot of visioning a lot of working with nonprofits uh, to make them more effective uh, and that includes diversity equity inclusion training thinking about how we make nonprofit leadership look more like the population that nonprofits are typically serving um, and and i think over and over what that pulls me into uh, when i look at the church is that we need a clear mission and a vision if you don't have a vision of where you're going, you tend to stay in the same place. And, and if you don't have a clear vision of becoming an anti-racist church, then you tend to kind of stagnate in this space of being a white liberal church that really wants to work around racism and is kind of scared to really think about what that means because you just, you have no idea, and that's scary. And yeah, it's scary. It, it, yeah. It's, it's scary. And and one of the things that's kind of interesting when you talk about that, I was in a conversation just uh, three days ago with a conference person who said to me, you are in a liberal church. Mm-hmm. This person, by the way, was was white. <laughs> you are in a liberal church, and one of the things that I am tired of is hearing liberal Christians talk and have very little action. And what I said to him, you know, let's not just plain talk about it in terms of a liberal versus conservative issue. Let's talk about it in terms of a Christ-focused and centered issue. 
how is God moving us to be who we are as God is calling us in different places at different times? I don't know. Um, I know that we as at Shalom really are convinced that we are anti-racist. I know that we do not feel as though we are biased. But I'm wondering one of the things I, that I, and one of, one of the friends that I have also uh, continually exploring what that looks like in her life. And what she says that she is discovering so many new things that she had not really realized in the past that kept her from being the kind of person that Christ is calling her to be. And she had to do some self-examination. And I guess that's what I'm calling us to do as we begin to vision, to do some self-examination. Um, and by the way, I know that I need to do some self-examination. <laughs> um, my attitudes are not always what it needs to be. Uh, and it is born out of how I was raised, uh, what my parents taught me, um, what my community believed, who I associated with. Um, those are the kinds of things that that kept me entrapped. And I think that it's probably keeping a lot of us entrapped. You know, I'm not, I'm not by the way, I'm not asking my white brothers and sisters to deny your whiteness. <clears throat> because very honestly, you're gonna be white a long time. <laughs> and so, but what I'm asking us to do is to explore what is keeping us from being the kind of ally that Christ is calling us to be. So what does that look like? I don't know. I don't know. Um, but it, it takes us back to this idea of costly peacemaking, right? That, that Glenn yes. Guyton yeah. pitched to us. Yeah. yeah, it does. It does. Um, one of the things that when Glenn talked about Christly peacemaking, I remember um, a conversation that we had not, oh, probably about three or four years ago where uh, a person was giving um, uh, a devotion and she was talking about inclusion. And she was talking about the day before she had uh, been in the presence of, uh, of a person who was in line and uh, who was going to lose her apartment, who was going to be homeless the following 
day and so forth. And she said, I don't know why I didn't respond. The, after all, uh, the person uh, was clean, was articulate, and she was white. Now, this was a liberal person who was speaking out of very honest understanding of who she was, but not really realizing that what she was saying was very racist. <laughs> and do we say and do our lives somehow exhibit that kind of thing? I'm just putting it out there for us to have that honest kind of dialogue. Um, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I want to. Um, one of the things that's that's uh, risen to my mind that that I think of a lot is what Shane Claiborne says about um, people talk about how Jesus like saves your life and gets you on the right track, uh, and Shane Claiborne always says, "But Jesus messed up my life. I was doing fine, <laughs> and then Jesus came along." Um, and and I think that that willingness to have our lives messed up. Um, but I think too um, about I'm I'm spinning in so many directions right now. Uh, but, yeah. but to go back to this question about um, what it looks like to become a multiracial church, uh, and th that I think that we've had a very flat discourse in the Mennonite Church about that in in the white Mennonite churches that I've attended throughout my life. Um, the half dozen or so, like the the discourse is often like, oh, how do we get the people of color to come to us, uh, without really acknowledging uh -huh. the deep <laughs> systematic racism and white supremacy that that caused black people to create their own churches, right? Because it was like, create your own church or sit up in the balcony in the white church and and you can be there but you have to be quiet and 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 kind of this history of like the ame church emerging because black people weren't really welcome in the methodist church and so they had to create the african methodist episcopal denomination and and so i think this sense of like how how do we hold that acknowledge that like our, our churches should hold a similar look to to the communities in which we find ourselves uh -huh. Uh -huh. yet it is it is a real you know it, it's similar to to saying like when we talk about our colleges and universities we want our colleges and universities to be diverse but but there are historically black colleges for a very good reason and and are we saying that like the historically black colleges owe it to the rest of us <laughs> to like help us become more diverse right like like i i think what i'm raising is just that that's a really complex question and and when you talk about becoming a multiracial church uh there's a kind of humility and authenticity that that are prerequisites there yeah, it is. And one of the things that I think that's happening now with anti-racism work is that we are really going into multiculturalism much more than dealing with race as an issue. Mm -hmm. um, multiculturalism or cultural competency as we talk about it somehow gets us where we are able to at least tolerate each other but 
anti-racism work goes much deeper. It explores the inner workings of our being, and it helps us to somehow dissect and eradicate those kinds of beliefs that we have held for so long and not only deal with the issues around equity, but also deal with the issues around justice. And we can't do that until we are able to free ourselves of those kinds of things. You know, I'm hoping that we can have much more discussion. I, I'm looking at the time here, yeah. Hillary. <laughs> and I think we are close to uh, the kind of time that we really wanted to kind of spin on this. But um, there are a lot of more questions we had here, too, by the way. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Uh, well, we got to we got to one of our questions. <laughs> I, I do want to name real quick um, what Eric dropped in the chat, because I, I think he hit on, I think, maybe unintentionally a really crucial point that um, the Mennonite faith and I, I feel this deeply as a millennial that like the Mennonite faith is built for millennials, right? Like we have an environmental justice stance. We have a peacemaking stance. We have this strong emphasize, emphasis on community uh, in, in a culture of alienation. Like so many of the things that are Anabaptist identity just speak so well to this cultural moment. And yet as Mennonites, we still internalize that as peculiar to a small ethnic minority that came out right. of Swiss German uh, right. Reformation era. And, and I think one of the things that holds us back besides this like internal Mennonite uh, sense of wanting to be the quiet in the land and not making waves and, and our, our own kind of deeply internalized ambivalence about evangelizing <laughs> about imposing on others uh, or, or sharing really <laughs> what we think. Um, maybe that's coming out of a fear of judgment too. But but that we have to, um, part of the, the unique challenge for Mennonites is that uh, there is a degree to which we're still embedded in a particular culture and becoming becoming a multiracial church, which we are, if you look across the denomination of Mennonite Church USA, uh, it is a very multiracial church, right? And and we just don't see that right. from where we stand uh, because the churches that we relate to primarily, the, the church we're in and the churches that we are closest to uh, geographically and culturally are predominantly white churches. Um, but I, I where I was going with that, yeah, it's just that uh, part of the thing that we have to unpack is a willingness to let go of this insular cultural mentality of, of having the right last names of the signaling that comes uh, visually and in text when you when you meet someone or, or even our attachment to the Mennonite game, like not not an inherently bad thing. And that can build a lot of really good connections. But the way we've played that. Uh, is to build up connections between white people uh, and to maybe have like your one or two black friends in, that you can play the Mennonite game with or or have find some connection with and and we we have to be willing to unpack that right and it, it, it uh, you know one of the things that I oftentimes do 
talking about playing that Mennonite game is that I oftentimes ask people, are you in the Hochstetler book? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. At the Hochstetler, there is a book that uh, is primarily um, from the, it's the, the this, uh, people who are descendants of, I think it's Jacob Hochstetler. But when, if we can get ever to the point, Hillary, that like what you are doing, is saying what? If we can ever get to that point, then I think we have arrived at mm -hmm. some kind of beginning of a solution, you know, um, because uh, where we are, I, I continue to say we have something good. As Anabaptist Mennonites and brethren, we have something good that, frankly, our communities need. <laughs> and we really need to begin to find ways of sharing that. But we have to also get ourselves ready to do that. So. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great place to end it. Thanks, Hillary. Thank you, John. Thank <laughs> you.